In both the movie Hustlers and the TV show Transparent, Trace Lizette does something that you might think was impossible in Hollywood. As a trans woman, she has a relationship with a non-trans man. Now, this is a rarity in TV and film, to see a trans person in a romantic relationship with another person, trans or not, but specifically someone who's not. Each time, it sends the message to the viewer that dating and desiring someone who trans is normal. It's okay. It is not any different than dating anyone else. And with all of the violence against trans people, most often occurring as intimate partner violence, it's seeing relationships like these on screen that seem so vital, so crucial to quite literally keeping people alive. We talk about all of this and more with Trace Lizette today. She is in the new Jennifer Lopez movie Hustlers. It is out right now. And as you'll hear, it's based on the true story of the legendary strip club Scores in New York City. That's a place where Trace actually worked before landing her big role in Transparent. From Luminary Media, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course. This is a big month for you. Did you know everything was coming out at the same time? I figured that out probably over the summer at some point. And I was like, ooh, should I hire a publicist? Nope, can't afford one. Just gonna do it as best as I can. But yeah, it is a big moment. Yeah. So the movie Hustlers is based on a true story that takes place at a real nightclub, Scores, which you used to work at, a legendary club. I did for eight years on and off. That's a long time. A very large portion of my life. Yeah. Were you open about being trans when you worked there? No. For my own safety, I was not. It was a very heteronormative environment. Wall Street guys, ball players hood dudes, drug dealers, uh, couples, um, lesbians. I mean, just, but still very heteronormative. Was not a safe space for trans people. I encountered a lot of casual conversation that was just extremely transphobic, not directed towards me, but just kind of being under the radar, the, the things that you hear. Um, probably similar, similar to like, if someone was extremely light-skinned and could pass as white and maybe heard white people saying, racist shit. Just over the years, I heard a lot of really disturbing things. And I just knew, I just knew I could not ever come out in that environment. Oh, wow. Because I didn't know if you were like tokenized as like the trans girl working there. No, I just didn't talk about my business. It was just a survival thing for me. But you were open in like your uh, private life though, right? Um, Here and there. I mean, I lived stealth, what we call stealth for a number of years. Even when I started acting in the industry. I didn't disclose. I didn't come out. My first job on Law & Order was not a trans role. And uh, in my private life, I guess dating, I've definitely had relationships where I didn't talk about it um, in my 20s. And I think that was also due to survival and acceptance and just what I was taught from my trans elders before me. Just, you know, if you can pass, girl, just live your life. And that's what we were taught was to just survive. And so it wasn't until the trans movement became like a national conversation that I felt like I was doing a disservice to my community by not saying anything. And so then I had to make the steps to safely figure out how to come out. 
That's a pretty massive difference now to be just publicly trans. Yeah, it was extremely massive. It's probably the biggest life change I've ever endured. Um, and it was liberating, but also extremely scary. And I'm still figuring it out. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm still figuring out, you know, where I fit in this world. Like, for example, in acting, I think I get caught between these two worlds of like, you know, being trans, but not, maybe not in some people's eyes, maybe not looking visibly trans enough to play certain trans roles. And then at the same time, not getting in the room for some of the leading lady type roles that are just written for cis women that I would love to get in the room for. Um, So it's just been a battle to kind of figure out where I'm supposed to exist. But I think Hustlers is definitely a a beacon of hope for me. It's definitely new territory for me. And I think probably for trans people as a whole. So it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, and your character, like what trans or not, she's also the one dancer at the club who has a boyfriend. Yeah. It was so special to me. Um, I mean, it was all a complete surprise when, especially when I read that part, I was um, just really happy because even though the character is not specifically trans, people know me as a trans actress and they get to see me have a boyfriend on a major, you know, movie. So um, I think that says so much without being on the nose or hitting people over the head with it. The, the character's name is Tracy. Was she written for you? She was written for me, yes. My friend, Devere Rogers, who is also my writing partner, sent me an article and said you have to be in this movie. They're making a movie about motherfucking scores and you have to find a way to get in this film. And I was like, oh shit, here we go again. Because I've had stuff in the past that was just deeply personal to me that I didn't really get to be a part of. And I was like, all right, well, normally I would take the proper channels and just go through my reps, but something just wanted to do it in an unconventional way and try something new because I just felt like it was too personal. So I sent out a tweet just with the article saying like, look, this is amazing. I can't wait for these women to have their story told. I worked at this club for over eight years. I would love to help in whatever way, shape or form. And that just manifested into a DM from Lorene Scafaria. It turned into lunch and talking for two hours about my days working there and just candidly giving her you know, stories and little gems of like um, my own experience that eventually she just ended up writing me a role. It was, you know, I was happy to just be a part of it in whatever way. And it just turned out the way it did. So I was happy. That's huge. Jennifer Lopez in the movie Mm -hmm. is like the mother character. Did you have someone like that when you worked at Scores? Hmm. I didn't have one single motherly person like that. I was kind of a solo flyer. I think... Maybe because of my transness, I kept a lot of the girls at arm's length, but there was a camaraderie. Um, And so I think I got that Ramona kind of essence from multiple women that I worked with. I met so many amazing women when I was dancing, ambitious women, mothers, girls that were in school, and then just really really awesome women that were strong and empowered and independent. Um, And there was even like one or two that I was able to eventually disclose my gender history to, and they were totally cool with it and it was not an issue. Um, 
And actually, I wasn't even the only trans girl working, like, in those clubs. Um, and so, you know, we kind of knew who each other were, and we just <laughs> didn't talk about it at work. And um, so, yeah, I think the camaraderie would have been, like, my Ramona in, a, in its own way. But it wasn't just from one single single person. I don't know if you were, like, being shared advice for, like, say this to a man, treat him like this, he'll tip you more and like things like that to it, to get more money. Oh, absolutely. There was definitely tips and tricks and you learn very quickly to not take every shot and throw them, most of them over your shoulder and blow the lines on the floor. And, um, you know, cause you're there to make money. You're not there to get wasted. I mean, sooner or later you figure that out, or at least I hope most girls do. I always found when I was most focused, that's when I did the best financially. So, yeah, it was a fantasy. They came there for a fantasy, and that's what we gave them. A lot of the dramatizations on TV, Hustlers, et cetera, involve drugs and sex work. How much of that is a reality? That's very real. You know, I have spoken in the past about my own history, and I think that it's just another part of survival, um, especially for women and, and marginalized women. So... Sometimes you feel like the only resource you have is your body or your looks. And that's extremely unfortunate. And I know that there are some people who choose that path. Um, I think for me, with my history, it was more out of survival. Um, actually, actually, I know that to be true, just uh, given the fact that I didn't have any family in New York City and I was just there existing on my own, paying my own bills and, you know, keeping my business Unlock. I think that it's a tricky world to navigate. And if you're if you're lucky or strong enough to come out on the other side and reflect back on it, that is a blessing. And I'm trying to see the blessing in where I'm at in life and just be in gratitude and and hopefully maybe be uh, some sort of guiding light for any of the girls who are still kind of in the life and want to get out. But again, I'm not saying that from a judgmental place because I realize that some people enjoy where they are. And at this time, you were always acting, right? Um, no. Well, I started dancing in 2007. So, well, yes. Okay. That's when I started acting classes as well. But I didn't start working as an actress probably until 2012, 2013. So I was on TV for a number of years before I was able to quit and clean out my locker and and start acting full time. I ask that because, you know, we, I think like there's like a dichotomy with stripping and sex work where um, it's looked down upon, but then also it's glamorized as yeah. like beautiful women, like taking home like hordes of cash. Right. I, I don't know if you mind me asking, like how much would you make in like a normal night, like working at scores? Well, it was, there was so many variables. I mean, before the stock market crash, it was easy to go in and make 800 bucks, 600, 600 to $800. Just, you know, dancing and maybe doing one half hour or hour private room where you just dance and drink champagne. Um, after the stock market crash, uh, things changed a lot. And so, you know, the average night got harder and harder. But um, there were some nights when I wouldn't make a dime and I'd actually leave in the hole because 
you have all these fees that are, that are called like house fees or, you know, tip out, you'd have to tip out like the DJ or the house mom or the hosts. And actually these things are not even legal. It's something that most clubs do. And so a lot of times you would leave in the hole, but like my best night ever, I think I made 13 grand and had to give a portion of that to the club and walked away with like 11. Are you walking home with 11 grand in cash? No, they, they cut you like there's a, there's an office. And you go down at the end of the night and they cut you a check. I know you were dancing at other clubs around the city too. Was that the story for them all at After the Crash? I think that's actually why I started to mix it up is because after a couple dry nights in one club, you're like, what the fuck? I have to shake this up and try somewhere else. And so I, I remember going to to dance in Riviera's at Queen, um, in, in Queens, um, which was just a different clientele. It was more of like, it was more like throwing money, making it rain versus like, you know, trying to get like that two hour VIP suite room with where you order steak and champagne. It was just more like, you know, do tricks on stage and make your money that way. But yeah, I think that that's why I would bounce around. Is I think that's why a lot of girls would bounce around is just because you need to diversify your like portfolio um, and your clientele. It's smart. Yeah. I just think it's really impressive that you're doing, as you said, whatever it took to get through. Yeah. And on top of that, you're also like making sure you've enough money to like put yourself through acting class. I did. Um, the money from the poll went straight into acting class, investing in myself. I had a rock bottom moment. I had a suicide attempt in my mid twenties and, uh, just realized I had to just invest in myself because I didn't want to be stuck on the pole the rest of my life. Uh, that just wasn't what I wanted. So I had never been to college. Um, I didn't have really, I really didn't have the opportunity to go to college. I mean, I literally fought my way through high school. Like I was bullied a lot for being different, for being femme and trans and expressing myself. Like probably when I was like 16 is when I started doing drag and, you know, being very eccentric with my look and playing with my gender. Um, did so, you use that word at that time? Like at what? 16, did you use the word trans? No, that wasn't even a word back then. I mean, I, yeah, I went to high school in the nineties. So this was like way before any kind of trans conversation. I think we used to word, use the word like drag or androgynous. Um, so I would kind of just gender bend, you know, through high school. Growing up and doing drag, it's such a, like a different experience to that then be a place where your femininity is celebrated. Yeah, actually that first validation probably came when I was doing drag um, in my late teens and early 20s. I was a showgirl all around Dayton and Columbus, which is where I grew up. And that was probably the first time I felt affirmed as a woman. And, and also the first time I met trans women who worked in the context of drag for a living, but then lived their lives as women. And so I know that's also been a topic of debate, like in the drag, RuPaul's Drag Race community about trans women doing drag and should cis women be able to do drag? Should, you know, who, anybody be able to do, do drag? And I, I believe that drag is an art form and anyone should be able to do it. So yeah, that was the first time my womanhood was affirmed was through the art of drag. And then and then again, when I moved to New York City at the age of 20 through the ballroom community, the ballroom house and ballroom, voguing under, underworld um, subculture that 
affirmed me not as a drag queen, but as a woman. How did you find your way in uh, initially into the ball culture? Initially, I used to attend uh, these little mini balls at a place called Albert's in Jersey City, um, near Journal Square, I believe. And then I moved to Brooklyn shortly after that, and I attended a ball at the Roxy in the meatpacking district. And I happened to be wearing like a a black Kangol hat and some like fluorescent pink mesh netted shirt with like a bra underneath and some some denim jeans, some uh, knockoff Manolo Blahnik Timberlands that you remember when, when Beyonce used to wear those? Yeah. So that's what I was wearing. And this category came up. It was called um, Butch Queen and Drags, Bring It Like Your Favorite Pop Diva. It was Butch Queen and Drags Realness, Bring It Like Your Favorite Pop Diva. And I was like, well, I'm wearing a fluorescent pink, like, mesh shirt and a Kangol hat. I'm kind of bringing it, like, pink. So I was like, let me just go up there. And I went up and I got my 10s and it was me versus, like, seven Beyonce's. And I didn't win, but, you know, I still kind of was divergenized in that way to ballroom, you know, competition. And um, and after the ball... Uh, legendary icon Stanley Milan came up to me and and we exchanged numbers and he just took me under his wing and asked me to come be in his house, which was the House of Angel. Uh, Laomi was actually one of the members too of the House of Angel. So we've known each other since we were babies. Uh, Laomi Maldonado, she's a consultant on Pose um, or a choreographer. And so, yeah, that's how I met my father. And then after that, after the House of Angel crumbled, I eventually found my way to the House of Mizrahi where I was New York mother and then overall mother. And and that's the rest of the And history. you still are today. I still am. Yeah, I'm still deeply rooted. Um, and, you know, trying to keep the house going. It's been around since 92. So, you know, it's a challenge at times to juggle acting and still, like, not forget, like, the importance of ballroom um and when was the last time you walked it was uh oof, i think 2015 at the mugler ball it was five thousand dollar face um and i won and i said that would be the last time i walk because um i've been walking for a very long time but people have really been you know hitting me up to walk the mugler ball again this year um in october at the playstation theater in new york because it's sponsored by Fenty um, and it's going to be huge. And I think they're giving away 10 grand for Femme Queen Face or open to all face. So I don't know if I'm going to go defend my title or not, but... Would people be mad if you went and won since you like don't need the money? <laughs> mm, don't need the money. That's another conversation in itself. <laughs> I mean, you and I live in Hollywood. I think that it took living here for me to realize just how much financial privilege affects people's success. Oh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's everything. I mean, it sounds like redundant now. Right. I don't think I realized how many people's like parents were paying their rent. I do not know that life. <laughs> so, you know, I've been on my own since I was 18. And I grew up in a single parent home. My mom was a school teacher. We didn't have money. We never even took, you know, vacations. But, you know, she did an amazing job with what she had. And so, you know, there were some rocky moments, but we had a full circle, you know, you know, kind of um, coming together after she educated herself on trans everything. And now she's 
finally my my biggest cheerleader. So I'm I'm lucky my mom is still in my life. There's a lot of trans people that don't have their parents in their life. So, but yeah, in terms of finances, I, I don't know. Um, I guess talking about it is a little cathartic for me because it, it can be frustrating. I would love to think about buying a house before I turn 40, you know, in a couple of years and maybe being able to take care of my mom or take a vacation with my mom. Who knows? Maybe that that's coming after Hustlers. I hope so. You mentioned mom. Um, you, for Mother's Day this year, you posted a picture of two women on Instagram. Yeah. It's a happy Mother's Day to my moms. I did. Who are they? Uh, my biological mother, Anne. Um, she raised me with um, with my sister. So she was a single parent. And then my trans mother, Rhonda, was the other woman in the photo. Um, and she stepped in when my, when my biological mother couldn't quite understand what was happening with my gender and was battling her own, I guess, prejudice that had been instilled in her from society. Um, And I don't fault her for that. So Rhonda picked up the slack and she has been in my life for many, 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 many years. She's kind of like a mother figure in, in areas of my life that my biological mother probably wouldn't understand. And so I'm lucky to have both of them. And are they friends? They're cool. Yeah. Like uh, whenever I go home to visit my biological mom, my trans mom lives an hour from her. So yeah, they're cool. They have each other's number. They have talks about life. And yeah, I love to see them both when I go home. That's so nice. Yeah. How long did it take your biological mom to become cool with you being trans? I would say about two to three years. Mm-hmm. It was a progression, you know. Um, it went from just like fully not understanding it to, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't understand that. And I think like the massive difference in the trans experience today is that your mom had no trans person to point to. She was born in 1953. I mean, you can imagine like there was nothing on television that was really going to educate her. The internet wasn't around. So I think she's a great example of what an adaptive parent can be. And I think that now our parents have more resources, much more in terms of like um, visibility and, you know, places they can go to read about being trans. And it doesn't have to be this like conflict between mother and child anymore. And like, I I keep going back to the example of your character and Hustlers having the boyfriend. Yeah. And like, it's like, it's every character but the trans character that gets to have like love in pop culture. Right. That was huge. It was huge that Lorraine just added that in. I didn't, it was nothing that I suggested. She just did that on her own. Um, I think it's kind of a Trojan horse in a way because people will watch this film and maybe someone will be like, who's that girl? And you know, that girl that had the boy, the jealous boyfriend or the sad boyfriend and maybe look me up and be like, oh, she's trans. Oh, wow. Like now indirectly, they know someone who's trans. And I just feel like it's not over, you know, it's not beating people over the head. It's not force fed. It's just like the perfect way to kind of open people's minds who may not ordinarily know somebody who's trans. So you started your career, you were not public about being trans. And then you made the decision to be more open about it when you got cast on Transparent. At that time, you had no idea that this Amazon Prime show would be what it is. That seems like a really big leap. Yeah, I racked my brain about that because I was basically thinking about giving up 
everything I'd worked so hard for because I worked really hard to um, blend and get this job in the strip club. And I worked really hard at compartmentalizing my life and what I thought was the right path for me. And it was my livelihood. And I had to kind of take that leap and know that this was going to be worth it. And I didn't know, but I took that leap. And I even worked in the club like that first year when Transparent was out. But yeah, that year was very contentious for me because I was on TV playing a trans character, but I was still working in the strip club. And it was like having one foot in each world. It wasn't until season two when they asked me back for half the episodes. And I had also shot a pilot for NBC that did not get picked up. Um, that I had enough money to like clean out my locker and just be like, okay, I'm going to take the leap of faith. Um, D- Jeffrey Tambor was fired from Transparent, as we all know. Um, you were one of the women that came forward first about him. And I bring that up because I don't think we talk to women enough about like how hard of a decision that is to decide to come forward. I mean, do you mind just talking about like what was going through your mind before you decided to do that? Um, oh, it was one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make. Um, but, uh, I had kind of, um, reached out to so many people and no one was reaching out back to me. And so I felt like the safest option for me was to just go public. It was really hard. I was blessed to have my girlfriend's. Um, and my mother, and I just took it one day at a time. And a lot of people rose to the occasion. Like they, they kind of, the community started to back me. I just kind of got through it. It was, it was scary. And there was like a smear piece. And, you know, I was like, am I even going to be able to work after this? But I knew I, I knew I couldn't look back in 10 years and be like, oh, you were a coward. You know, you just didn't say anything. And And I feel like it had to be in your mind how much the show meant to people. Oh, yeah. Because I knew, like, I didn't want the show to collapse because of this. Um, And I, that's why in my statement, I was like, please don't let this be the end of Transparent. Like, and so, thankfully, we got our season five. I mean, thank you for letting me ask about that. I, I just, I hope that my questions are, like, making it clear, too, that, like, the show coming down, had it collapsed, would have been Jeffrey's fault and not the person who, like, told. Amen. I think a lot of people don't know that there were hours on hours of investigation that went on after my public testimony and Van Barnes's um, public testimony and and then Rain Baldez after me and... Tamara Delbridge, I think, was the makeup artist on another set. So it often gets reduced to just Van and I, but it was actually four women and um, an investigation that Amazon, you know, conducted and then concluded that, okay, he's got to go. So I I really wish when, when people are coming out with all these articles about season five, oftentimes they just scurry past the sexual allegation, the sexual harassment allegations, and they say, and they they call them just that, but it was also a huge investigation. And we had to be questioned for hours and hours. And it was just really intense. And I think that a lot of times people don't understand the bravery that's involved with the Me Too movement. Like 
sometimes there's still that old school way of thinking about sexual harassment. And it's scary. Like uh, when this mirror piece came out about me, I was just like, are they serious? Like what decade are they living in? You know, I know that I did the right thing and I spoke my truth. You coming forward and saying that this kind of behavior is not appropriate and how publicized that statement was. It also tells like young kids growing up who are learning morality that, oh, a guy can't do that to me. Yeah, like I don't deserve that actually. You know, just because I come from a certain walk of life, I'm here now, I'm professional. And maybe you thought that was why you could treat me that way. I have no idea, but you can't. Are, are you saying because you're trans or because you've like stripped at clubs? Oh, both. I think trans women are sexualized a lot more so than cis women. And we know how much cis women are objectified. Um, and so I think that Jeffrey and a lot of men have probably operated that way for many, 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 many years. And the day has come when it's just not all right anymore. Is it hard that he has had a career that's continued? Yeah, I don't know how much he's working now. I know that he did that last season of Arrested Development. And I really, I don't want to talk about him too much because I've like moved on from all that. But I think the fact that he did work for a while after all of that stuff went down is due to the fact that his accusers were mostly trans and our word doesn't really carry the same weight as cis women. Oh, in the same way that we are able to go about our daily lives with all of the trans women dying. Right. We're able to go to like, let him slide off the hook. Yeah, maybe. That's just my speculation. I don't know. I mean, I just have to like stay in the light and go towards my blessings. I don't really want to think about Jeffrey, um, and, uh, yeah. You have a public platform, but I see people with smaller platforms and they come forward with allegations and th that's dealt with. And then the women stop working. Like everyone's like, yes, like tell your truth, believe women, right. but also like you, then they have repercussions massively. Absolutely. And I think that we need to be conscious and intentional of hiring the women who have come forward because... That's the only way we break that cycle because, I mean, the year 2018, it was so hard for me because um, I came out against Jeffrey and then uh, we didn't go back into production for the show and I didn't work and I lost my health insurance, my SAG health insurance, because I didn't work enough to qualify. You know, it was hard because I was watching like Pose going to production and like all these trans girls working and I wasn't and I had no health insurance. And I was like, what am I going to do? I can't go back to dancing. You know, like, what am I supposed to do? Do I give it all up and just like go be a waitress? I don't fucking know. And thankfully, work has come again. And, you know, I'm really stepping into one of the biggest moments of my life this month with Hustlers and Transparent Finale and David Makes Man. And so it's it's been amazing. I'm still trying to find the life lesson in all of it. Maybe it's to just stay in gratitude. But The life lesson from what? From just 2018, just not working and losing health insurance and, you know, trying to figure out if I would be able to stay afloat as an actress. Yeah. For doing something that was on the right side of history that was, you know, that needed to be 
exposed. You said early in the conversation that you're trying to figure out your place in Hollywood. I don't remember the word you used, like an adjustment, I think. That's all like professional. What about personally? Like now that you have been out for like five years, how how does that feel? Gosh, it's so layered because on the one hand, I feel like I'm doing the right thing for the community um, and for myself to an extent. But it's hard on a personal level. It's hard finding love. It's hard finding partnerships. I date straight cis men usually. And there's this huge stigma um, with dating a trans woman. And so it's been very elusive. Um, And I don't know if I'd call it a burden or like a cross to bear or just something that we need to push through historically so that we can get to a point where trans is a little bit more normalized. Um, But I think five years in, I know I've done the right thing for me, but it's still, there's still days when it's really painful. It's like the best way I can describe it. Does it feel like you are a bit of like the sacrifice for like the larger like movement? For the next generation? Yeah, Yeah. maybe. Yeah, because I see, I I, I also see changes happening and the generation behind us is getting the rewards of those of those changes. And I often think about my peers and like my elders in the trans community and like how they're so deserving too. So it's, uh, yeah, I guess the way you said it was the right way to say it. Thanks for talking to us. Yeah, thanks for having this me. This is great. And that is it for today. Until next week, come find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. That's a great way to stay connected and to recommend guests. I love hearing from you each week. We are brought to you by Luminary Media, Neon Hum Media, and The Advocate. The Advocate magazine is the world's leading LGBTQ news source. Come check out our website at advocate.com. LGBTQ&A is produced by Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Stafford, John Asante, Jordan Gosperay, and myself, with sound engineering by Mark Bush. We'll see you next week.